0: Who wants to be a millionaire? He's won a million dollars! We're going to explore how millionaires got that way. Back in 1997, two authors, Thomas Stanley and William Danko, published a book with their findings of interviewing millionaires and what they had in common. This book is called The Millionaire Next Door. They identified seven commonalities that millionaires had in common. Let's dive into the content, shall we? This is the Will Frederick Podcast, where we talk about real estate, wealth building, money, and life. So first, let's define some terms. Let's talk about what it even means to be a millionaire. The actual definition is that your net worth is at least $1 million. It doesn't mean you can spend a million dollars in one year, or it doesn't mean you make a million dollars in one year. The definition of net worth is everything you own minus everything you owe on what you own. So, for example, if you own a house, that's worth $200,000 and you owe $100,000 on it, that will contribute $100,000, the difference between those two, to your net worth. If you have a car and the car's paid off and it's worth $10,000, then congratulations, that's $10,000 on your net worth. Now, if you have a car that you can sell for $30,000 and you owe $40,000 on it, well, that's a negative $10,000 net worth. So, to build your net worth... You have to accumulate things that grow in value greater than what you paid for them. So that's a good little primer on net worth and what it means to be a millionaire. It actually means to having $1 million in net worth. Now, for some bad news, I'm going to bust some bubbles here. If you want a way to get rich quick, this is not the book for you. A couple of myths that the book dispels, and the biggest one is the process of accumulating wealth is not a flash, rapid process but a slow one that takes years of habits and discipline. And so if you're in for that, you're gonna be in for a treat today. There's a lot of stats in the book. We're not gonna get too much into that, but typically the wealthy individual is one who has lived in the same town all of their adult life. They own a small factory or chain of stores or a service company. They're business owners. They've been married once and they stay married. They are a compulsive saver and investor and they make their money on their own. So 80% of America's millionaires are first-generation rich. So a lot of misconceptions that they you know, inherited their money, that's not really what millionaires are, most of them. So the seven common denominators of millionaires are number one, they live well below their means. So most people say, well, when they say they want to be a millionaire, what they mean is they want to spend a million dollars. <laughs> the funny thing is, that's literally the opposite of being a millionaire. Because if you have a million dollars, you are a millionaire. If you spend a million dollars, you're not going to be a millionaire anymore. <laughs> so, uh, so you got to be careful. So, the book explores a lot of different scenarios where that lavish lifestyle—it's definitely a high, uh, a sign of high expenses in someone's life, but it's not necessarily wealth. All you know about that person is they have—if they bought a fancy car, you know they have that much less money than they did before they bought it. You don't know how much they had before. You don't know how much they have now. It could be a sign of wealth. It could be a sign of foolishness, to be honest. So the book really hammers that a lot. It's a very responsibility-laden book. So it's actually a myth that millionaires live in huge mansions and rich neighborhoods and drive fancy cars and wear designer clothes. The hallmark of millionaires, the book found, is that they are exceptionally frugal. They, they adhere to strict household budgets, believe it or not and they invest prodigiously they invest like there's no tomorrow they love investing it's funny because even the book's authors had some misconceptions about millionaires in the first interview they had where they gathered some millionaires together they you know advertised and got millionaires they had this stocked up bar with caviar and fine wines a millionaire walked up and and they offered him offered to pour him a glass of 1970 bordeaux and he kind of looked around and he said i drink scotch and two kinds of beer free and budweiser Literally, that was his comment. And right then and there, they began to learn a little bit about millionaires. There are four questions that they ask these millionaires, and they go into the stats of them in the book. But the first question was, does your household operate on an annual budget? Over half of millionaires, they have a household budget, over half of them. And even half of the non-budgeters, they invest first, and then they spend the balance. They may not have a strict budget, but their first priority is investing. One of the second questions they asked was, do you know how much your family spends each year on food, clothing, and shelter? Almost two-thirds of millionaires said yes. They have those numbers dialed in. They know those numbers. The third question, do you have a clearly defined set of daily, weekly, monthly, and annual and lifetime goals? About two-thirds, again, said yes, they do. So they're not just you know, at the whim of their finances and they're at the whim of their wealth. They have a plan. They have a goal. And then the fourth question is, do you spend a lot of time planning your financial future? Again, two-thirds of them said yes. That's another thing I'll refer to Bob Norton's podcast, the last podcast we did. That is a big part of their financial future is tax planning, investing, investing time in building their wealth and making a plan around it. So that's the first thing. They live well below their means. Number two, they allocate their time, energy, and money efficiently in ways conducive to building wealth they recognize that these resources, time, energy, and money, these are finite resources, and they channel them into efficiently building wealth. They start earning in life as early as possible. They start earning and investing. So a lot of them had jobs when they were teenagers, and they they worked all the way through and they began investing. Here's a little tip. uh, If you want to measure up against just what's average and what's general, your expected wealth, just do this for me, your expected wealth, where you are in your life, it, it varies by age range, right? And it varies by income level. Your expected wealth should be your age divided by 10. So if you're, you're 28, it would be 2.8 times your annual income. So for example, if you're 28 years old, that's 2.8. And if you make $40,000 a year, that's 2.8 times $40,000 a year. And your net worth should be 112,000 on average, it's not saying it's right or wrong. It's just on average, the average American, that's going to be where they land. So you may want to do that calculation and see where you, you you measure up. The book explores a couple of different categories. The top quartile, the top fourth of Americans, which is the people that have two times that expected wealth formula, they're considered prodigious accumulators of wealth, PAWs. Uh, they're in the top quartile. Then they have under accumulators of wealth, and those are UAWs. Those are the people with in the bottom quartile, the bottom fourth. And they're the people that have about half of that average income, the expected wealth. So, again, to build wealth, you want to minimize your realized or taxable income. And we talked about taxes a lot in the last episode and maximize your unrealized income, which is wealth and capital appreciation without cash flow. And that quote comes from page 55 of the book. Do this reinvesting your money into things that grow. And taxes are actually one of the biggest expenses that you have in your life. So millionaires, again, have figured out ways to save on their taxes. And when they broke down PAWs, remember prodigious accumulators of wealth, PAWs tax bills as a percentage of their net worth, they found that they're much lower as a percentage of net worth versus the UAWs. So again, millionaires have figured out ways to minimize their tax bills. So That's number two. They allocate their time, energy, and money efficiently in ways conducive to building wealth. The third thing is they believe that financial independence is more important than displaying high social status. So The prime neighborhoods and the luxury cars actually set you back in wealth accumulation. A lot of those neighborhoods, I remember from reading the book, are filled with high lifestyle individuals, and there's a lot of keeping up with the Joneses. Everybody's looking around and making sure that they have the right car and they have the right you know pedigree and the you know suits or whatever those things that actually detract from your net worth it's interesting on page 68 there's a quote that i want to share if you're not wealthy and you want to be someday never buy a home that requires a mortgage that is more than twice your household's annual income if your income's $40,000 your mortgage shouldn't be more than 80,000 according to the the wisdom shared in this book just again another checkpoint you may want to check yourself up against how these millionaires think about their money And and how you do. So the other thing is they're they're starting to sound like not a whole lot of fun, you know, budgets and frugality. But the interesting thing about millionaires is they don't live miserable lives. A lot of these folks love what they do. And they're just simple. They're financially independent. And the freedom that comes with that, it's not conducive to a lavish lifestyle, but it's freedom. They're happier. Studies show that they're actually happier than those who aren't as financially free. So very interesting. They don't focus a whole lot on the outward. They focus on their own situation. The fourth thing is their parents did not provide what the book calls economic outpatient care. Some people believe that the wealthy inherited all their money, and that's obviously true of some millionaires, but the vast majority of millionaires are self-made. A huge commonality is that their parents didn't help them by paying for cars or houses or education or other financial gifts that were large. That was pretty interesting. And that's a big wake up call to a lot of people who might get financial help from their parents. I have a funny story to share. My dad, early on in our marriage, we were struggling a little bit financially. And we went to my dad and we weren't asking for a handout, but we were kind of just sharing, or I was kind of sharing the situation with him. And he said, son, it's actually pretty simple. You have two funnels in your life. You have the funnel of the money coming into your life, And then you have the funnel of the money going out of your life. In order to not be broke, you got to do one of two things. You got to grow the money coming in funnel or shrink the money going out funnel or or a combination of the two. That has always stuck with me because it's just math. You know, if you spend more than you make, you're going to be broke. Uh, If you spend less than you make, you're going to accumulate wealth. And that seems to be a commonality in the way that millionaires think. They're always spending less than they make. Doesn't mean you can't up your lifestyle, it just means you always have to be cognizant of that difference, that delta, so it continues to build up. The fifth thing they found out about millionaires is that their adult children are economically self-sufficient. So not only did they inherit some wise habits from their parents, but they pass them on to their kids. And this is something that my wife, Rhonda, and I have strived to do in our own life. We're always asking ourselves, how can we train our kids to be economically self-sufficient? So we have five kids from ages 15 down to seven. And all of the money they earn, we have a system where we have them tithe 10% to give it to God at the church we attend. And then they split the remaining 90% evenly. Half goes to savings and half they can spend immediately if they want. It's not always the most popular plan with our kids. Oh, dad, we have to tithe and split. Uh, Everybody wants to spend all their money. And guess what? That's just like us. We're all like that. We all want to spend all our money. But if we discipline ourselves... And again, we're disciplining our children. We're really training them in the art of discipline and frugality. So if we can kind of form those habits, and this is what the millionaires have done in their lives, and I'm trying to take and learn from this, we can help our children and help ourselves become wealthy or build wealth. And that's a big point of this show. Again, my, my podcast is about wealth building and real estate and money and life. So I want to help my clients, my listeners, understand how to help build wealth in their life. I'd like to thank our title sponsor, First Access Mortgage. They are Louisiana's first choice mortgage lender for 21 years, and we're excited to be partnered with them. If you have a first home need, a vacation home, a refinance or investment property, they're truly your home loan resource. Today's show sponsor is Norton Accounting Services with real estate tax pro, Bob Norton. He has been a past guest on the podcast, and he's sponsored today's show as well. Bob's goal is to help clients become financially free using real estate. He focuses on real estate investors. He's got clients with properties in 48 states. He's been a valuable resource to me and others. And so he sponsored today's episode. So thank you to Bob. Thank you to First Access. If you'd like to see that episode with Bob, go ahead and check out the link in the description below. So the sixth thing they found about millionaires is they are very proficient in targeting market opportunities. So the book does a really deep dive into different market projections about industries and sectors that will be experiencing growth they they're predictive of that and professions that will serve the affluent are considered to be growth sectors so medical and dental specialists, professional services such as accountants and attorneys uh, real estate related services such as mortgage contractors, interior designs, travel agents real estate agents travel marketing so identifying market opportunities was a big winner in, these, in the minds of these millionaires. A lot of them started businesses that catered to these industries. So they not only knew the market opportunities, but they knew the value of an asset when they saw it. So one of my favorite stories that Gary Keller tells, and Gary Keller is the founder of Keller Williams, he tells a story about knowing the value of an asset versus the value of a consumable. He's teaching a crowd of teenagers and he says, You know, he points out a a fancy, expensive pair of shoes somebody's got in the room and he says, hey, these shoes, if I were to sell you these shoes, if I were to say, hey, I'll sell you these shoes for a dollar, how many of you would buy it? And so all the kids raise their hand because obviously the shoes are worth more than a dollar. And he says, now, if I said, what if I'd sell you a piece of property for $50,000 and it's this piece of property, who would buy it? And of course, not too many hands go up. And he says, well, that's the problem. He said, the problem is you have mastered the value of consumable things, things that are essentially worthless, that go down in value. Whereas I, talking about Gary Keller, have mastered the value of things that are assets that grow in value, because that $50,000 lot could be worth a lot more than that. But if I pay less than it's worth, I'm gonna build long-term wealth. The same thing you would do with the shoes, because, hey, that's a good idea. But the problem with shoes is, typically they don't go up in value. Now we have some collector shoes now and there are exceptions to that rule. But the point of that example is you have to know the value of an asset. And so you may not know the value, so you don't know if it's a good deal. And the problem is most people don't know the value of assets. They know the value of consumables because that's most of what we spend our money on. To make wealth, the wealthy make it their business to know the value of assets versus consumables. And you have to educate yourself on the value of those assets. So real estate's obviously a big part of that. That's where, that's where I've chosen to focus my uh, expertise on. So I'd encourage you to do the same. Know the value of the assets. The seventh and final thing was that they chose the right occupation. The book goes into great detail about different occupations. Most of them are self-employed business owners, and a common theme through this is they're not as flashy as tech stock investor or app inventor. It's more dull and service-oriented, usually, like manufacturing, auto parts, or other similar industries with low competition. Businesses in dull, normal industries perform very well for their owners. Business owners identified themselves, and this is a cool little aside. They have several beliefs that help them reduce their risk or their perceived risk. And these six commonalities of the business owners were, I'm in control of my own destiny. Risk is working for a ruthless employer. So they see an employer as being more risky than self-employed. I personally can solve any problem so they can take control. And the only way to become CEO is to own the company, right? Instead of climbing a corporate ladder, there are no limits on the amount of money I can make as a self-employed person. And I get stronger and wiser every day by facing risk and adversity. So those are the way business people think, and that's what helped them create their success. So I think the bottom line is that you can accumulate wealth no matter what income level you're at. The trick is to live below your means and have a strategy toward improving your wealth. So another book that's a companion book to this, Thomas Stanley went on to write another book called The Millionaire Mind that explores some of the ways that the millionaires think. There are eight key areas vital to millionaires becoming millionaires. So number one are success factors. The top five factors most often mentioned by millionaires as being very important in explaining their economic success are number one, integrity, being honest with all people. Number two, discipline, applying self-control. Number three, social skills, getting along with people. Number four, a supportive spouse, believe it or not. Number four, top, top success factors, Number five, hard work, working harder and more than most people. So pay attention to those things. Those are, if anybody else was surprised by that, I thought that was interesting that those are the five factors most often mentioned when millionaires were asked to explain their economic success. The second thing was schooling. They found it to be important, but not necessary. They didn't attribute their success to their alma mater or good grades. 90% of millionaires graduated with a 2.9 GPA. So- be encouraged, some of you out there who might think, oh no, I'm not smart enough. No, you, you're you fine. Only 2% of millionaires graduated at the top of their class. So have no fear. It's not about being smart necessarily. I'm sure it helps, but it's not the end all be all. The third thing was the relationship between wealth and courage. All said it requires courage to build wealth. Taking risks, challenging the status quo, overcoming fear and worry. And we talked about that in another episode, the risk factor. You have to be able to find confidence in yourself and overcome that risk. The fourth commonality was vocation. They chose the right vocation. They were very passionate about what they do. They're usually business owners. They were the largest category. And two out of three, interestingly enough, two out of three millionaires don't even retire, even though they can. They found a small niche in specialization in a field, and they just went for it. They said, this is what I want to do. A fifth area, we, here we come with the spouse again. Their choice of spouse really matters. Mates that are supportive, patient, and caring. Honesty was a big factor, and it delves deep into like some of the traits that a millionaire looks for in, in a spouse. And A lot of their choices happened before they were millionaires, by the way, but it's interesting. These are commonalities that they found later on down the line. They look at their spouse for joint decision-making and a trusted partner, trusted advisor. For every 100 who said their spouse wasn't important to their accumulation of wealth, because apparently there were at least 100, 1,317 said they were extremely important. So for every 100 that said they weren't important, 1,300 plus said they were extremely important. So the sixth factor is an economically productive household. We talked about frugality earlier on they refinish furniture. They alter clothing. They use coupons. They buy household products in bulk to save money. They are into resoling shoes instead of buying new. They aren't DIYers, by the way. They don't do it themselves. They don't spend time on things that they aren't very good at because there's an opportunity cost for them to do it themselves. Is there a better use of my time? They ask themselves, can I go spend the money on the professional to do it and then Use that time productively to make more money. That's number six. The seventh factor is choosing a home. So, the average millionaire holds on to a home for 10 years plus. They're also able to walk away or being willing to walk away from any deal on any home at any time. They very rarely pay asking price for a home. Uh, now, that was in a, this is a little bit of a dated book. So, today that might be a little bit harder to do. They don't buy in a short span of time, a lot of them do a lot of research. They'll look for estate sales or divorce sales or a foreclosure. And only 27% had a custom-built home. So again, you kind of might have assumed that millionaires had just built these fine houses and they are all custom. No, only 27% of them had custom-built homes. So they always buy homes that they can afford. The eighth and final factor was lifestyle. So interestingly enough, they were asked the questions, the top three activities they engaged in in the last 30 days... And there was a list of activities, and the top three were they socialized with children and grandchildren, they entertained close friends, and they planned their investments. So those are the top three things that millionaires did on a regular basis. So I hope you learned some things today about building wealth. And this is truly one of my favorite topics. And I love sharing what I've learned with you. They were great books. I would highly recommend them. So keep tuning into the Will Frederick podcast where we talk about real estate, wealth building, money and life. I'm very passionate about helping you build your wealth. And also, I'd also like to thank our sponsors, our title sponsor, First Access Mortgage, which is Louisiana's first choice mortgage company for the last 21 years. We're excited to partner with them. Go check them out if you need any sort of uh, mortgage information or mortgage refinance or purchase. And then again, I'd like to thank Bob Norton for sponsoring today's episode. He loves helping his clients become financially free through investing in real estate. He's got clients with properties in over 48 states, and he focuses on real estate investors. So if you want more information about that, you can check out the episode with him, our last episode. Thanks again for tuning in today. This is the Will Frederick Podcast, where we talk about real estate, wealth building, money, and life. Thank you.